Hello again. We're back for another edition of Tiny Tiny Kingdoms, where I read out a short story um, for people who have trouble sleeping at night. And um, yeah, hopefully it helps them feel less lonely um, when they wake up, maybe feeling anxious or annoyed <laughs> that they're awake. Tonight I'm going to read um, from the same one, that, the same book that I read from last night. Um, it's uh, There Are Little Kingdoms by Kevin Barry, um, published by The Canons. It's a great collection of short stories, as, as we've seen. And tonight we're going to read from um, the title track short story. Um, so I think this one might be a little bit shorter than last night's one. But we'll see how we go. So um, here we go with There Are Little Kingdoms. It was deadening winter, one of those feeble afternoons with coal smoke for light, but I found myself in reliably cheerful form. I fluttered above it all, pleasantly distanced, though the streets were as dumb-witted as always that day, and the talk shops were a babble of pleas and rage, and love declared. Of all things, love sent out to Ukraine and Chad. It was midweek, and grimly the women stormed the, the veg stalls, and the traffic groaned, sulked, convulsed itself, and the face of the town was pinched with ease. I had a song in my throat, a twinkle in my eye, a flower in my buttonhole. If I'd had a cane, I would have twirled it, unquestionably. <laughs> I, pa I passed down Dorset Street. I looked across the laundrette. I make a point of always looking into the, the laundrettes. I like the steamy domesticity. I like to watch the bare fleshy arms as they fold and stack, load and unload. The busyness of it, like a Soviet film of the workers at toil. I find it quite comical and also heartbreaking. Have the misfortunes, no washing machines themselves, I worry. Living in old flats, I suppose, with shared hoovers beneath the stairs and the smell of fried onions in the hallway and the awful things you'd rather not hear late at night. Turn up the, pe the television with you, for, for fuck's sake. Is that a shriek or a creaking door? And there he was, by the laundrette window, smoking a fag, if you don't mind, even though I was on the other side of the street. I... I couldn't mistake him. He was not one you'd easily mistake. Steel wire for hair, a small, tight, mushroom-shaped cloud of it, and he was wizened beyond his years, owlish, with the bones of the face arranged in a hasty symmetry that didn't quite take, and a torso too short for his long legs, heron's legs, and he was pigeon-chested, poetical, sad-faced. I walked on, and I felt the cold rise into myself from the deep stone centre of the town. I quickened my pace. I was too scared to look back. I knew that he'd seen me too, and I knew that he would flee, that he would have no choice but to flee. He was one of my oldest and most argued with friends. He had been dead for six years. I didn't stop until I reached the river. The banks of the river were peopled with the foul and forgotten of the town. Skin poppers and georgewers hanging out their ratty dogs for dear life. Hanging on to their ready dogs for dear life. 
eating sausage rolls out of the centre, wearing thin nylon clothes against the sleep, seep of the evil-smelling air. The river light was jaunty, blue-green. It softened and petrified as best it could. I sat on a bench and sucked down some long, deep breaths. If I had been able to speak, the words would have been devil words, spat with a sibilant hiss, all consonants and hate. Drab office workers in duns suits, trumped baguettes. People scurried with their heads down. People muttered. People moaned. I tried to train my thoughts into logical arguments, but they tossed and broke free. I heard the oomph and swirls of circus music. My thoughts swung through the air like tiny acrobats, flung onto, uh, flung each other into the big tense canvas moor, missed the catch, fell to the net. I was in poor shape, but slowly the water started to work on me, calmed me, allowed me to corral the acrobats and put names to them. A car wreck in winter, in the middle of the night, that had done for him, and there is no coming back from the likes of that. Or so you would think. The road had led to Oranmore. I tried my feet, and one went hesitantly in front of the other, and they set me in the direction of Bus Arras. I decided there was nothing for it but to take a bus to the hills and to hide out for a while there with the gentle people. I walked a troubled man in the, cho- in the chalk stripe suit and the cheeky bowler, and this is where it got good. A barrier had been placed across the river's walkway, and there was a sign tacked up on it. It read, No pedestrian access beyond this point. Fine, okay, so I crossed the road. But the throughway on Eden Quay was blocked too, with the same sign repeated, and I thought, Waterworks, gasworks, cables, men in day-glow jackets. I'll cut up and around, but there was no access from Abbey Street or from Store Street. Everywhere the same sign had been erected. Bussaras was a no-go zone. I saw a man in the uniform of the state, and he had sympathetic eyes, so I approached and questioned him. I am sorry, sir, he said. There are no buses from here today. There are no buses in or out. I stood before him, horrified and not because of the transport situation, which at the best of times wasn't great, but because this man in the uniform was undeniably Harry Carolyn, a.k.a. Harry Cakes, the bread and fancies man of my childhood. (laughs) The van would be around every day at half three. Set your watch by it. Loaves of white and loaves of brown, fresh-baked bread and ring donuts and jammy donuts and sticky buns too. The creased, kind folds of his face, the happy, downturned mouth, eyes that, in a more innocent era, we'd have described as dancing. Eclairs, fresh cream Swiss rolls, all the soda bread you could eat, until 1983, when Harry Cakes had dropped dead in his own shoes. I went through the town like a flurry of dirty snow. This is a good one, I said to myself. Oh, this is a price taker. Now the faces of the street streets seemed no different. It was the same bleary democracy as before. Some of us mad, some in love, some very tired, and all of us, it seemed, resigned to our humdrum affairs. People rearranged... Oh, I have to turn the page here. 
People rearranged their shopping bags so as to balance the weight. Motorists tamped down their full, f- their dull fury as best they could. A busking trumpeter played Spanish Harlem. I took on a sudden notion, I thought. Might a bowl of soup not in some fundamental way sort me out? There was a cafe nearby on Denmark Street. I would not call it a stylish operation. It was a tight, cramped space with a small scattering of tables, greasy ketchup holders, wipeable plastic tablecloths in a check pattern, Larry Gogan doing the just-a-minute quiz on a crackling radio, and I took a seat, composed myself, and considered the menu. It was written in a language I had no knowledge of. The slanted graphics of the lettering were a puzzle to me. The numerals were alien. I couldn't even tell if I was holding the thing the right way up. No matter, I thought. Sure, all I'm after is a drop of soup. And I clicked my fingers to summon the waiter. It's where I'd asked him to take his eyes out and put them on a plate for me. The face on him. And he slugged across the floor, a big bruiser from the country. What's the soup, Captain? I asked. Carrot and coriander, he said. Flatly. As though the vocal cords were held with pliers. He seemed to grudge me the very words, <laughs> and he did so in a Midwestern accent, and as always, this drew me in. I considered the man, a flat iron face, hot with angry energies, mean, thin mouth, aggravation in the oyster grey eyes, and a challenging set to the jaw, anticipating conflict, which I had no intention of providing. I looked at him wordlessly. You'll understand that by now I was somewhat adrift as regard the emotions, and the cafe was on pause around us, and he grew impatient. Do you want the soup or what? He said, almost hissed it, and it was at this point he clarified for me, I made out the childhood face in the back of the adults. It's Thomas, isn't it? Thomas Crimmins. Sea light came into the grey oyster, into the oyster grey. He gleamed with recognition, and it put the tiniest amount of happiness in his face. Even this was enough to put some innocence back, too, and thus youth. He clarified still further, detail came back for me. <clears throat> He'd been one of those gaunt kids, bootlace thin, and more than averagely miserable, a slime of snot dried on the sleeve of his school jumper. I remembered him on the bus home each day, waiting for someone braver to make the first move at hooliganism. A sheep, a follower, a doubt, dull-minded. But somehow I remembered kindness in him too. He said, Fitz. We talked awkwardly but warmly, and with each sentence my own accent became more Midwestern, and his circumstances came back to me. I remembered the small house on a grey stone terrace near the barracks. Sometimes after school I would have been in there for biscuits and video games, and I remembered his sister too, older and blousy, occasionally fodder of forlorn fantasies. And of course there was his younger brother, younger than me, but... Alan Cremens had been killed, hadn't he? Of course. It all came back. It had been one of those epochal childhood deaths some of us have the great excitement to, to encounter. He was caught in an April thunderstorm fishing at Plassey, and he took shelter in a tower there and was struck by lightning. I remember the shine of fear on us all for weeks after. Hadn't we all been fishing at Plassey at some point or other? And hadn't we all 
seen the weather that day. It could have been each and any of us. It was about the same time I noticed girls. I liked big, healthy girls with well-scrubbed faces. We had any amount of them in the Midwest. Should I mention it? I remember, I said. Oh, God, Thomas. I remember the time with Alan when he, you know. Al, he smiled. You remember Al? Of course, I said. Though in truth it was vague, I remembered a slip of a child, a pale face. Hadn't he? Blue-veined, I think. Some of those, one of those cold-looking young fellas. Sure, isn't he inside? Beamed Thomas, and he called out. Al, come here, I want you. Alan Cremens, in chef pants and a sweat-drenched T-shirt, with a Turin's ladle in his hand, stepped through the swing doors of the kitchen and smiled at me. A somewhat fucked smile. Fits, he said. Grotesque, horrible. A child's head on a full-grown man's body. I legged it. What else could I do? Away into the winter streets, these malignant streets, and I raved somewhat at the falling skies. You couldn't but forgive me for that. By and by, anger overtook my despair. Frankly, I'd had enough of this messing for one day. I raised the collar of my jacket and dug my hands into the pockets of my trousers. I hunched my shoulders against the knifing wind. The sky was heavy with snow and it began to fall, and each drop had taken on the stain of the town before it hit the pavement. Chestnut sellers huddled inside their ancient greatcoats. Beggars whittled the dampness off sticks to keep the barrel fires stoked. The talk shops sang in dissonant voices. Tires squeaked angrily in the slush. Black dogs roamed in packs. We were all of us in the town bitten with cold, whipped by the wind, utterly ravaged by this mean winter, but we stomped along regardless, like one of those marvellously tragic Russian armies one reads about. Of course, yes. The obvious explanation did present itself, and as I slipped along the streets heading north out of town, I considered it. If the dead were still all around me, was it conceivable that I myself had joined their legion ranks? Was this heaven or hell on the north circular road? A ludicrous ludicrous idea, clearly. I was in too far much pain not to be alive. I soldiered on. I began to wind my way slowly westwards, and the streets quietened of commerce and became small terrace streets. And toothless crones huddled in the sad grog shops. From somewhere there was a scrap. There was the scrap of a plaintive fiddle. A a man with a walrus moustache came along, all purposeful, and he passed... A hand built to me. It announced a public meeting the Saturday coming. Larkin was the promised speaker. His topic predictably dreary. <laughs> I made it to the park, and it was desolate with nobody at all to be seen, and it calmed me to walk there. I came across some of the park's tame deer. They were huddled behind a windbreak of trees, and I stopped to watch them. The tough-skinned bucks seemed comfortable enough in the extreme weather but the does and the fawns had to work hard at it. They were they were rolling shutters of effort along their flanks as they took down the cold air, and the display of this was a symptom of glorious life, and my heart rose. Fawns! I was clearly in a highly emotional state, and I thought it best to make a move for home. Fuck's sake, Fitzy, I said. Come on out of it, will you? 
before they arrive with the nets. I went into the northwest suburbs of the town, the patch that I had made my home, and I allowed no stray thoughts. By sheer force of will, I put the events of the afternoon behind me. I made it at last to my quiet residential street in my quiet residential suburb. I went, uh, I rent there the ground floor of an aging semi and the situation I find ideal. I have a sitting room, a lounge, a neat single man's bedroom and a pleasant light kitchen from which French doors open to a small oblong garden. And to this I have sole access. I turned the key and stepped inside. I brushed the dirty snow from my shoulders and I allowed the weight of the day to slide from me with the chalk stripe jacket. I blew on my hands to warm them. I went through to the kitchen area and drank a glass of water. I then pulled open the French doors and stepped outside. I stepped into glorious summer. The fruit trees were full in bloom and it was the dense languor of July heat, unmistakable, and I unfolded my striped deck chair and sat in it. The transistor was by my feet and I turned it on for the gentle strings, for the swoons and lulls of the afternoon concert. I removed my galoshes and my shoes and stockings, and I stretched ten pale toes on the white-hot concrete of the patio. I unfolded my handkerchief. And tied it about my head, I turned up the sleeves of my shirt and opened the top three pearl buttons to reveal an amount of scrawny chest. I listened to the stuff, to the soft stir of the notes and the trills and scratchings of insect, insect life all around and the efficient buzzing of the hedge trimmers and the children of the vicinity at play. They played crankily in the sun and it was my experience that the hot days could make the children come over rather evil-eyed and scary. Beyond mere mischief and sometimes on the warm nights they lurked till all hours are about the streets. They hid from me in the shadows and played unpleasant tricks. <laughs> startling me out of my skin as I walked home from the off-license. Drinks were all I was required to provide for myself. Since I had begun this lease, I found that the shelves daily replenished themselves. Nothing fancy, but, but sufficient. Fresh food and veg, wholemeal breads, small rations of lean meat and tinned fish, rice and pasta, tubs of stir-in sauce, loose-leaf tea, occasionally some, so some chocolate for a treat. I had a small money tin in the kitchen, and each time I opened it, it contained precisely €8.99, which was the cost of a drinkable Ryoja at the nearby branch of Bargain Booze. <laughs> Utilities didn't seem to be an issue. No bills arrived. In fact, there was no mail from anywhere ever. <laughs> the phone, however, was another matter. Sometimes it seemed as if the thing never stopped, and it rang now, and I sighed deeply in my deck chair, as I lifted my ageless limbs and went inside to it, summoned the power of the little fucker. Ufiu Ben, said the voice. Li you do la wafa kwan. I'm sorry, I replied wearily. I have no idea what you're talking about. Didn't get a word. Nigifini ukuhuhulume naye. No, I said. Not getting this at all. Thank you. I hung up and waited, for the calls always came in threes, and sure enough, it immediately rang again. Cheros Mawiak Zemaria Muje Pawijiakye Zeya Kocham. Please, I said, don't you speak any English at all? For sure, he said, and hung up. 
The third call was promptly put through. And Buhifu Taj An. And Buhifu Taj An. I don't know any Tajas, I cried. <laughs> I haven't seen any Tajas. I complained several times to the exchange for all the good it had done me, but I thought I may as well try again. I dialed the three-digit number and was quickly connected to a faceless agent. The exchange was part of the apparatus of the state that seemed to be a law unto itself. I gave my name and my citizen tag number. I'm getting the calls again, I said. It's been a bad week. It's been practically every day this week, and sometimes at night too. Can you imagine what this is doing for my nerves? There's been no improvement at all. You promised it would improve. Who promised, sir? One of your agents. Which agent, sir? How would I know? I wasn't given the agent ID, was I? No, you were not, sir. We are hardly permitted to enter into personal terms with citizens of the state. It would be untoward, sir. This is the exchange, sir. Well, how can I tell if... Please hold. A maudlin rendition of Spanish Harlem on trumpet. And I whistled along miserably. I had fallen into melancholy. The drab old routine of these days can get so can get to a soul. But I was determined not to hang up. They expect you to hang up, you see. And in this way, they can proceed. And they can get away with their thoughtlessness. The music faded out and I was given a series of fresh options. If you wish to hear the details of the exchange new evening call rates, please press 1. I threw my eyes to the heavens. If you would like a top-up for your free go, anywhere, anytime... Please press 2. I refuse to carry one of those infernal contraptions. If you wish to discuss employment opportunities at the exchange and to hear details of our screening arrangements and of our physical and mental requirements for operatives, voice engineers and full-blown agents, please press 3. I'd rather work in the sewers. <laughs> if you seek an answer to the, to the sense of vagueness that surrounds your existence like a fine mist, please press 4. I press 4. A happy vo voice exploded in my ear. <laughs> it was the voice of heartiness. It was the voice of a resort manager at a mid-priced beach destination. It was, it was a kind of stage Australian. Watcher, it said. Feeling kind of grooky, mate. What do you want to do? You want to go down your garden? You want to go down them fruit trees? You want to find the ladder that's hidden there, right? That's what you want to do. You bloody well climb it. <laughs> the phone cut out, dead air. I proceeded directly to the garden. I put on a pair of plimsolls. I removed the handkerchief from my head and I walked down to the dense summer tangle of fruit trees. I pulled back the hanging vines, parted the thick curtains of growth, and I could see nothing at first. But then my eyes adjusted to the dappled half-light and I made out a dull, wooden gleam. And yes, it was a ladder. I pushed my way through, thorns snagging at my trousers, and I began to climb. Slowly, painfully, I ascended through the thick foliage and I came to the treetops and a view of my suburb its neat hedges and mossy slate roofs. And I climbed on, and I went into the white clouds and I climbed higher still. And the ladder rose up against rocky outcrops. I found that I was climbing past the blinding limestone of a cliff face, and at last I got to the top and hauled myself up onto the salty, springy turf. I walked. 
The marine breeze was pleasant at first, after my sweaty efforts, but soon it started to chill me. It was a bright but blowy spring day, and the first of the cliff-top flowers was starting to appear. The, the tormental, the early orchids, the bird's foot trefoil, a milky white sea lapped below, and it had latent aggression in it. And I looked down the stretch of the coastline, and, oh, I don't know, it may have been Houth or Bray or one of these places. There was nobody around. Black-headed terns battled with the wind and rose up on it. And they let it turn and throw them. Sheer play. I walked and I concentrated on clearing my mind. I wanted to white out now. I wanted to leave it all behind. Yes, I walked. I walked into the breeze, and after a time I came to one of those mounted telescopes, the kind that you always get at the seaside. I searched in my pocket, found a half-crown, inserted it, and the block slid away on the eyepiece and I looked through. There, appears, there appeared to be a problem with the telescope. It was locked in place. It wouldn't swivel and allow me to scan the water, the shore, the sky. It was locked onto a small circle of grey shingle just above the water's edge and I saw that it was a cold and damp day down there. It was a winter by the tide line. It was springtime on the cliffs. I kept looking and she appeared. She crouched on her heels and looked over the water. She wore a long coat, belted, and a wool scarf about her throat. It wasn't a close-up view, but even so, I could see that age had gone on her. I could see the slump of adult weariness. The view was in black and white, flickering. It was old footage, a silent movie, and I knew that moment, uh, that the moment down there had passed too, and that she herself was long gone now. If I was to find her again, it would be pure chance, a random call coming through the exchange, and I would try to explain, I would. I'd try to tell her why it had happened the way that it did, but my words would sink beneath the waves, where shock-bright colours surprise the gloom, the anemones, the starfish and the dead man's fingers, the clam and the barnacle, the brittle star. The eyepiece blacked out and I walked back the way I came. I descended the ladder to an autumn garden, russets and golds, and a bled cool sky. Turtle neck weather, my favourite time, the season of loss and devotion. Hmm, well, that was There Are Little Kingdoms, um, the short story that is also the title of the book that contains other short stories in it. Yeah. I hope you liked that one. It seemed to be um, maybe uh, a little bit more whimsical, maybe. Maybe even a touch of the absurd about it. But it seemed to follow the, the seasons in some way. Maybe we can all listen to it together again sometime and see if we can make sense of it. But I think that's um, that's all from me today. I'll see you again tomorrow for another story. Maybe we'll try a different book. I'm not sure. Or, ma or maybe we'll continue with Tiny Kingdoms. Sorry, There Are Little, Little Kingdoms by Kevin Barry. We'll see how we feel tomorrow. <laughs>